0: I know most of you at this point are looking over your shoulder, going, Wait a second, where is Lance? Um, Lance is gone this weekend. Him and Russ and Joe and Diane are checking something out at another church. And so, for part 26 of the Life of Worship series, you get me. And uh, you're probably going, okay, but who are you? Because one of the hard parts about being at a large church or being on a large staff is that you can be here for a while and no one has any idea who you are. So my name is Matt Bach, and I am the pastor of high school ministries here at Bridgeway Christian Church. We have a whole bunch of high school students over here. This is usually the time that we are meeting for um, the high school group, but uh, I'm getting a chance this weekend to take you guys through Second Samuel, and I've been the, the pastor of high school ministries for 10 months now, and it's been an amazing, adventurous ride. Um, we have great high school students here, and there's a lot of momentum happening. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. So we're going to be talking this morning about what does it look like to recognize God's design and God's intention in your life, because... There's always this invisible and yet purposeful power that is happening, that God is working around us. And when I was 18, I remember getting a chance to go on a missions trip to Mexico, actually the same trip I'm getting ready to take our high school and college students on this next week, next, next year, sorry. Um, and when I remember going on that trip and I got duped into it, I got tricked. I had a friend literally grab me and drag me over to someone else and go, Matt should go as an interpreter to Mexico. And I'm like, I only speak like 75% of the language. That's not fair to the people, but they only understand 75% of the time of what's going on. And yet while I was in Mexico, interpreting between the high, uh, the high school pastor at our church and the Mexican pastor, God like punched me in the arm, and it literally felt like a punch. And he said, look at this. Part of my design and my intention is working right now. You were trying to run away from me. You were trying to have nothing to do with this. And I had this design and intention. And that sprung me forward into ministry and trying to figure stuff out. And I I know a lot of us here, whether you're in high school, you're in college, whether you're um, a family or, or you're in your elderly years, all of us get stuck in this spot where we're constantly asking the question to God, what do you want me to do next? What is my purpose? God, I don't know, I have no idea what your design and intention is for my life. Any of you guys ever felt that way any recently? That we're asking those questions. Um, I remember God ended up taking me all different places. I got a chance to be a pastor in Colorado Hills. I um, got a chance to study in Canada. I got a chance to be a pastor in New Zealand. And all throughout it, I kept going, "Okay, hey God, this is amazing, but I'm still wondering all the time. What is your design? What is your intention in this? And that question comes up in even a greater way when you start talking about the uncertain things that happen in your life and the tragedies. When you start having chaos happen and you're not in control of what's going on, and that's when a lot of us are looking up to heaven and we're going, why, God, what is your design and what is your intention with this? And that's a very familiar feeling for a lot of us, and for some of you guys that might be specifically sharp for you this morning because you're right in the midst of that. But to even take it more personal, a lot of us sometimes are looking at other people and we're asking that same question. If you're a parent, sometimes you're looking at your your children or your sons or daughters and you're going, why, oh Lord, are they acting this way? And you're asking that question or you're looking at a spouse and you're going, Lord, I do not understand your design and intention at this very moment with what they're doing or how they're acting. And we do that with friends and we do that with others. And as we're walking through Second Samuel today. That you're going to see that the story we're going to go through is a very good story. This is the kind of story that would make an excellent movie because it's a mixture of a spy film mixed with a satire, with a lot of comedy in a sense, mixed with a drama full of tragedy. But the main thing that the story focuses on is how do you recognize God's intention and God's design in your life, in what's happening? And how does a life of worship intertwine with that? And I know personally that God's intention, God's design is easy to understand when things are going good. When things are going good and you're saying, God, show me this, and you feel like God has opened a door or closed a door, a lot of us go, yeah, God's design, his intention is so clear. But for a lot of us, when things become extremely difficult, when things become horrible, it's a lot harder to figure out what God's design and God's intention is. And in this part of the Life of Worship series, you're going to see that God stays true and faithful to his design. That despite what happens, God works in different people. And you even see someone like King David, the person that's been this model of what it means to live a life of worship. You see a man, even as great as him, have this deep emotional response where you're going to hear him cry out, Why, oh God, why, why, why? And when I hear that, it reminds me, as David's living in the darkest hour of his life, that this story is about real life. It's a story that resonates and echoes with us because we go, I know what it feels like to try to ask God, what is your design and what is your intention? And I'm going to give you a little hint or or a cheat in a little bit. See, Lance was kind enough, and I say kind kind of sharply, to give me three and a half chapters to go through with you guys. And I'm like, thank you. Here you go, into the deep end. Um, I'm I'm glad about it, but we're going to give you a kind of a cheat in the beginning to go, okay, here's what the main point is of the entire message. Here's the thing that centers around everything that's going on, and it comes up in chapter chapter 17 verse 14. You don't have to turn there just yet because we're going to get there a little bit later. But in tonight's passage, you recognize God's design in this one sentence. It says, "For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of the Hithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom." Now, so many other parts of the book of Samuel, you see God sending prophets to bring his word. You see people like King David and others consulting God to find out his counsel. In this story, in these three and a half chapters, you will not see anybody consulting God. You will not see a prophet come into the picture. You won't see any of that. But this verse, this one sentence is setting the course for you to understand that God's design is happening in this story that he is working with every piece, and he is like brilliant light shining in a dark story. Because we all know that the throne of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, was God's. And God could grant that throne or deny it according to his will. And that's why if you look on your sheets, the the fill-in-the-blank here for this morning says this, don't sit where God didn't put your name. And that's speaking specifically about Absalom and about how God's dealing with his design and his intention. But let me set the context a little bit for you guys before we walk into chapter 16. It's taken about almost a month of going through, but if you remember, Lance set it up with the whole story of David and Bathsheba, where David was on the roof of his palace, he saw a woman bathing, he wanted that, he brought it up to his palace, he slept with her, she got pregnant. When he found that out, he took her husband, sent him to the front lines of battle with the Ammonites, and got him killed. And the Lord sent a prophet, Nathan, to come and speak to David and to go, dude, that was not right. And God does not directly punish him or smite him at that moment. But he goes, you know what's going to happen? Your whole family is going to unravel. And you're going to find these next number of years to be very, very difficult. And that starts happening. A number of weeks ago, Lance talked about Amnon, one of David's sons, and how he desired his sister Tamar. And he brought her into his room. He raped her and then sent her out in shame. And her brother, Absalom, who's going to come into our story here, two years later, while stirring on all this vengeance, kills his brother Amnon in front of all his other brothers and sisters and their families. David doesn't do anything about it except he puts Absalom in exile. And for two to four years, Absalom's in exile. And finally, David's commander, Joab, kind of begs David to let Absalom come back and at least live in Jerusalem. And David permits it. But he still won't see Absalom face to face. A couple more years go by. And he finally is able to see Absalom face to face. And that takes us into chapter 14, where in 14, verse 25, it says this about Absalom. Now, in all of Israel, there was no one as much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole to his, of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And it's trying to make it very clear to you that Absalom was very good looking. He was handsome. The next verse talks about what? His hair. It talks about his hair would grow so long in a year that when he would cut it, it would be five pounds. And if you remember, Lance set that whole picture up of this is a very Jewish-looking Fabio, you know, standing out there. And people are going, well, yeah, you're awesome. You know, and this guy caught people's attention. And in chapter 15, Absalom goes and he starts doing all this conspiring to begin taking over the kingdom. And he would get in a chariot and have 50 men run before him. And he would stand at the gates of the city and he would hear people's cases. When they were coming to consult the king on what they should do, he would intercept it and go, here, let me hear it, because there's no one here from the king to hear your case. And he would start turning everybody to him. And in chapter 15, verse verse 5, it says this, Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And 1513 echoes it, the hearts of the men of Israel had gone after Absalom. And so he begins this whole piece of taking over the kingdom. Now if there was ever anybody that was more equipped to lead people astray, it was Absalom. He was a handsome man, he was charming, he was likable, he was cunning, he was persuasive, and he had royal blood. So it just made sense. The fact that he had no character wasn't important to most people. They didn't recognize his spiritual poverty. But he did not have what it takes within to be king. Because what is within is what matters most. It's all about the heart. For those of you guys that have been tracking in the Samuel series, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, God made that very clear to Samuel the prophet. When he's looking at these guys and trying to go, who should be king? God goes, I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at what's in the heart. And you can see that Absalom lacks all of that. And you see it at its greatest height when Absalom lies about the worst thing you could lie about. He lies about worship. He goes up to his father and says, let me go to Hebron so that I can go worship the Lord, so I can make a vow and sacrifice to him. And it's in that motion that he ends up going and starting the whole thing to take over the kingdom. He lies about worship. Talk about a contrast to a life of worship. You have it in Absalom. So after amassing this following, he sends out a message for people to declare that he's king in Hebron, and he starts it all up. He brings in this guy named Ahithophel, who is David's aide and David's counselor, a guy whose name means, my brother is foolish. Ironic, huh? And the conspiracy grows stronger, and it increases in number. And a couple weeks ago, uh, Lance talked about how David fled his household with all of his servants, with all of his bodyguards, weeping as he went. And we go, how would this happen to the king of Israel? How does a guy that's so immoral and a guy that's, Lacking so much heart, how does he take over the king from Israel, the kingdom from the Israel's greatest king? There's a guy named David Guzik that gives a couple reasons that I think are very important to consider about what's happening. First, he says David was getting older. David was in his 70s by now, and that made it hard because people are like, "You're older, you don't remember as much, you're getting slower," you know. And that was just natural in terms of their response. Second, David's sin with Bathsheba had diminished his standing. That people were like, wait a second, you really screwed up. How are we supposed to respect you? But then people also followed after Absalom because people sometimes just like change. Isn't that so true of human nature? That sometimes they just go, hey, let's change it up. And look, this guy's exciting. This guy's smart. This guy's skillful. This guy's cunning. This guy's good looking. And that became one of the reasons. But I like his last reason. He says one of the main reasons that this happened is that David had to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. He had to kind of hit the bottom so that he can in one sense understand the same thing that the Messiah from the line of David would experience many years later. So let me pray and let's walk through this passage together. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have a design and an intention in our life and that you are working in so many pieces around us. We pray, God, that you would dig the junk out of our ears this morning and chisel the stone off of some of our hearts. So that we can hear, sometimes for the first time, that you have a design and an intention in our life. That, God, you care so much and you are continually working. Lord, help us to see in this passage what it means to have a viewpoint that gives us a sense of the life of worship. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be starting right in 2 Samuel chapter 16, starting at verse 15. If you're grabbing one of these Bibles that are in the seats, it's going to be pages 268 to 271. And uh, the story starts off very much like a spy story. And you're going to enjoy these first, uh, these first words as we get into it. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Now what's cool is that you're getting a chance to enter into the throne room of Absalom for that moment as he's having his first strategy meeting of what he has to do next to take over the kingdom. And what's happening is this guy Hushai has just entered the scene. And to give you context, Hushai was the king's friend. That was his job description. Whereas other people were like, yeah, I'm the commander of the armies. Yeah, I'm the cupbearer. Yeah, we were priests in the temple. What do you do? I'm the king's friend. That's an awesome job. And he was the one that was, stayed around him, counseled him, did all that kind of stuff. He wanted to leave with David out of the city. When David was going, he goes, let me go with you, please. And David goes, no, you need to go back and you need to mess up the council of Ahithophil. And so Hushai comes in, and I love Hushai because he's very sly and very particular with his words. Because he comes in and he starts by going, long live the king, long live the king. And he gives no definite article to it. So he goes in and goes, long live the king, David. You know, and he kind of slips it in, and Absalom thinks that he's talking about him, but he's not. And then when he continues and he says, well, whoever God has put over this nation and who the people follow, I'm with him. And again, he never says that's Absalom. He's still staying off under, the, under his breath, David. And, and you see Hushai kind of working his magic here, and he does in the end establish himself as an undercover spy because he goes, whom should I serve? Just as I served your father, so I will serve you. And now he gets his place in there. Now Absalom turns and he brings Ahithophel in and he starts asking for counsel on what he should do next. And it's really interesting because that right off the back should tell you a lot about his character. He doesn't seek God's counsel. He goes, let's just talk to other people and see what people have to say. And so verses 20 to 23, we're going to hear the first bit of counsel that Ahithophel gives him. He says, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left you to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into the father's, into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So the first move, the first thing that he's instructed to do is to go sleep with the harem that's left of David. And that was actually a political move. That was normal in that day. That was how he was declaring his kingship. But it was also doing something else. And what he's talking about with the stench is he's saying, by you doing this, that is immoral within the law of the Lord, you are making it very clear that there is no chance for reconciliation with your father David. So all the people that are watching you take over are very clear that you are taking over the kingdom and you are not ever going to give it back over to your dad. Because Hithophel knows that people are kind of watching going, is this kind of like premature? Is your dad going to come back and you're going to like hug it out as men and like figure it out? And then we're going to be like, oh, but I switched sides and what does David think? So Hethfield's like, no, make it very clear. And he tells them to go do it. And it says that they go and they pitch the tent on the roof of the palace. And that's a bridal tent. They're putting this bridal tent up that all the people in Israel and Jerusalem would see it and know what's going to go on in that bridal tent and they have Absalom walk in, and they have all the concubines be brought in, and in the sight of all Israel, not literally, people know what's happening. Verse 23 expands a little bit on Ahithophel, and it says this aspect of that when he gave counsel, it was as if he was consulted the word of God. Now, isn't that interesting? What he's trying to talk about is the fact that this guy, when he spoke, his logic and his rationale and his wisdom seemed so good and made so much sense that people would say it's as if it's not exactly but it's as if you've talked to god on this and one of those things that this shows me is it goes hey there's gonna be a lot of people that you will encounter that they're not followers of the lord but they will say things that just sound so good and there could be so much wisdom that you'll still go well man it's almost as if i think that's how the antichrist will come into the world Because it will seem a little bit like that. But let's continue on to the second part of his counsel that picks up in chapter 17. I'm just going to paraphrase this because you're going to see me paraphrasing a lot. Why? Three and a half chapters. I'm sure you guys want to have lunch at some point. All right. So the next part of the counsel, Ahithophel says, Now let me choose 12,000 men and pursue your father tonight. I'll come on him while he's weary and discouraged. I'll hit him before he can regroup. And that will throw him into a panic and all the people will flee from him. And I will strike down only the king. I'll have this lightning-like surgical strike that will focus on only taking out one man. And then I will bring back all the people to you as a bride comes home to her husband so that they will become loyal to you and you will not lose a person. And the advice seemed right, it says in verse 4, in the eyes of Absalom and the elders of Israel. Now I need to give you some background to why Ahithophel is giving this advice. Ahithophel is doing this because he wants vengeance on David. Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, when it talks about Bathsheba, it says that she's the daughter of Eliab, one of the mighty men. In chapter 23, you learn that Eliab was the son of Ahithophel. So when that all went down, that was personal for Ahithophel. When David slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband, this was personal. And so when he gave that first scheme that Absalom should go and sleep with David's concubines, that was particularly satisfying to him. Because David had had unlawful sexual relations with his granddaughter at the royal palace, although she was married to another. So now his son is having unlawful sexual relations with David's harem in the same place, but ten times more. And secondly, his second piece of counsel is that he wants to personally lead the charge to take down David. David. His vengeance, his bitterness is so personal that he wants to go lead the charge. Nowhere in scripture does it say Ahithophel is a commander or a soldier or anything, and yet he wants to lead the charge because he wants to personally just kill David. And that became such an obsession to him that it took over his life. And so he counsels it in that way. Verses 5 to 7, though, change it up. Verses 5 to 7, you see God's design and God's intention start playing into it because right after that's happened... Absalom goes, let's hear from Hushai. He had no reason to have to do that. The counsel that Ahithophel gave was actually pretty good counsel, strategically. Because that night they could have went and taken out David and his people. But for some reason, God's design, Absalom asks differently. Let's read verses 5 to 13. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite. And let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came, Absalom said to him, "Thus has Ahithophel spoken; shall we do as he says? If not, you speak." Then Hushai said, "The time, this time, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good." Hushai said, "You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war; he will not spend the night with his people. Behold, even now he has hid him himself." hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place and as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack whoever hears it will say there has been slaughter among the people who follow Absalom then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel know that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men but my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person so we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and of all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into the city, then all of Israel will bring ropes to the city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai is better than the council of Ahithophel. For the Lord is ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. There's our key passage. I love that part of it because Hushai, the undercover spy, gets brought in and he has to figure out what to do on the spot. So he gets brought in, gets told Ahithophel's plan and has to come up with a counter plan like that. And he has to figure it out without giving away that he's a spy and that he's working for David's benefit. And so I love it because he kind of plays on the fact that he's the king's friend. And he plays on the fact of what David and his mighty men used to be. And he starts talking through it all, and he goes, you guys know him and his mighty men. These are enraged, violent men. He goes, have you ever went and wanted to pet a baby cub of a bear? And you're over there going, oh, look at this cub. And then you see the mother looking at you and charging at you. He goes, that's what the mighty men look like. I've seen it in their eyes personally. And he starts talking about that, and he goes on to say, these guys are experts in war. Your father is an expert in war. He's not going to spend the night and be like at this loss. He is ready to take on anybody that you send at him right now. And what I like is Hushai is painting a picture of David that's actually David and his mighty men at the pinnacle of their life. Because you have to remember, again, David is old now. His mighty men are getting older. They've lost a number of the mighty men over time. But he's trying to paint the picture with exaggeration to get everyone to go, oh, you're right. And he's getting them freaked out a little bit. And then he starts playing on their machismo and their ego. And he says, here's what you need to do. Gather all of Israel to you. You, you want to put up the map for me? And he says, get all the men from Dan to Beersheba to come. So if you look at Dan, you're talking about 150 miles almost of land that he's saying, grab every fighting man you can get from all of the Israeli kingdom. He goes, let's get 100,000 guys. Let's get them all together. And you, Absalom, need to lead the charge. You need to go to battle in person. We'll find him where he can be found. We'll fall upon him as rain falls on the ground. No one will survive. If he withdraws into the city, man, we'll take ropes and we'll take it to the ground and not a pebble will be found. See, what he's talking about is all these massive demonstrations of power. And he's playing on Absalom's mind because Absalom is the kind of guy that he likes demonstrations of power. This is the guy that when he wanted people to know who he was, he got a chariot and had 50 men run in front of him. So people were like, ooh, that guy has good hair and 50 men, right? And people are looking at that. So he's playing on that. And so Absalom and all these guys go, this is great. And all the while, Hushai is trying to do this subversive plan to give David and all the people with him more time to get over the Jordan, to get set up, because it's going to take over a week for all 100,000 soldiers to get gathered together. So he's working this plan, and we all know that it's God's design and God's plan. So then the story takes... A little faster turn. I'm going to paraphrase through this. But Hushai goes and he, and he talks to Zadok and Abiathar, two of the priests that are also loyal to David. These are the guys in charge of the Ark of the Covenant. They wanted to leave with David as well. And David said, No, you need to stay there. Hushai goes and tells them what happened. And they go, Okay, we have this whole spy network plan. And they're going to send a female servant out from Jerusalem down to Enrogel. And two of the priest's sons, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, are going to be there. And they're going to get the message. And then they're supposed to book it 20 miles to the fords of the Jordan to tell David what's going on. And then you have this whole spy scene where they send the female servant and she's going to tell those two guys and some of Absalom's guys see her and their cover's been blown and now there's this pursuit and those guys move another mile down to a city called Baharim. They find somebody loyal to David and they say, hey, we're in trouble. We need to hide. And they go, get in the well. They get in the well, put the covering over it, put grain over it and then Absalom's guys come and they're looking around for them. And you have to imagine that scene. You have Jonathan and Ahimaaz in this well. And I guarantee you, because I think Ahimaaz was a junior hire, that he's probably talking to Jonathan going, hey, can we, no, shh, I need to go to the back. No, you know, and they're having this scene. Absalom's men come through, ask the woman what's going on. She goes, oh, they crossed the river. They go look, they give up. Jonathan and Ahamaz get out. They run the 20 miles to David. They tell him what happened. And they say, you need to get across the river now. Because if you don't, you will be swallowed up by nighttime. And David and all his people by daybreak have crossed over. Kind of a cool spicing, right? All it would take to make it mission impossible is Tom Cruise with repelling gear, and you're good. The story interrupts though, right in verse twenty three, and it kinda of goes, Let's digress for a second. And look what it says, it focuses in on Ahithophil. Which you have to give me credit, I've had to say Ahithophil like three hundred times this weekend. And you try that. Okay. Um, all right. When Ahithophil saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went home to his own city, Gilo. He set his house in order and he hung himself and was buried in the tomb of his father. See, Ahithophil knew that the counsel that was given to Absalom was not going to work. He knew right off the back, And he knew that that would mean David would return and that he would know that Ahithophil had betrayed him and he would kill both him and possibly his family and at least humiliate his family. So he's like, it's better for me to just put it all in order and take care of it myself. And what's sad about Ahithophel for me is that he had been a faithful servant of the king and the kingdom until he wanted vengeance on David. That desire for revenge so obsessed him that he began to serve his own sinful desires and left the person that God intended him to be around. And I start thinking, how tragic is it when a man or a woman leads an exemplary and useful life and then fails dishonorably at the end? We talked about this in one of the men's book studies here at the church, a book called Finishing Strong, where it says that only one out of every 30 men will go on to finish the race of faith. Sorry, one out of 10. You guys are like, oh, no. <laughs> um, well, That's still, that's still pretty bad odds, though. One out of, Only one out of 10 will go on. And I think Ahithophel is one of those examples of there's people you can start strong and look like you're living an exemplary life. But if you're not tracking and not paying attention to God's design and intention, are you going to finish well? Let's keep moving in the story. The intensity starts heating up in verse 24. I'm going to keep paraphrasing, but David comes to Mahanaim. You can see that up on the map. And uh, he finds a city, and that's where he's going to kind of take base at that moment. And three guys come and give him all these goods and support. that from the Ammonites, Makir of Lodabar, and Bazali of the Gileadites. Gileadites. Um, and they bring food and support and beds and equipment, and all the people that have been traveling in the wilderness are now taken care of, and now they're more prepared for what's going to happen if they have to go to battle. In the same verse, it tells you that Absalom and all his men have crossed over the Jordan. So this is like a week or two later, and the story is continuing. Verse 25 says that Absalom set Amasa over the army for Israel. That was Joab's cousin and David's nephew. So now you have more family all tied up with it. And what's happening here is that so far, all of Absalom's coup and trying to take over the kingdom was bloodless. He had taken over Israel unopposed, and that was exactly what David wanted. David could have stayed with all his bodyguards and all his people, and they could have fought down to the last man. But David was living a life of worship, where he was trusting the Lord to work according to what the Lord knew best. So he waited. Chapter 18 takes us right before the battle. Verses 1 and 2, it says that David mustered his men and he put his commanders over them. Joab's over one group, Abishai's over one group, Ittai's over one group. And he's getting ready to suit up to go out and fight with his men, and they instruct him to stay in the city. Look at verse 3. They tell him, wait, no, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they're not going to care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. It is better for you to stay here and send us help from the city. And look at what they say. Look at this next line but you are worth 10,000 of us. These guys knew the cause they were fighting for. They knew that David was the one that God wanted as king over their kingdom. They understood God's design. They understood his intention. Verse 4, David makes, makes sense of that, and he goes, whatever seems best to you, I will do. And he stands at the gate and watches his whole army go out. And then you see David move from this aspect of being a king to then trying to be a desperate father. And in verse 5, you see him turn and go. He orders Joab and Abishai and Ittai, and he says, deal gently, please protect for my sake the young man Absalom. And it says that all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And you have to wonder what's going through their mind. Because they're going, Absalom surely has not been gentle with you. He killed your son, he drove you out of Jerusalem, he seized your throne, he violated your concubines, and he is now sending an army of 150,000 plus guys to come kill you. Why are we protecting him? Can you explain this? I think there's two things happening. One is I think David is expressing his yearning to be a father that is screwed up. He's saying, you know what, I haven't done it right the first time, or the second, or the third, or the thirteenth. But this time, can you just respect my fatherly wish that I want to almost give him another chance? I think that's part of it. And I think the other part is, in David showing mercy, I think he's reflecting what it truly looks like to be someone after God's own heart. Because he's saying, maybe this is how our father deals with us. When we're acting in rebellion, when you're resisting, when you're trying to move yourself out from under God's design and intention, God still goes, but I want to give you another chance. I want to still chase after you. Scripture doesn't make that fully clear, but I think it's hinting at that. But then the battle heats up, verses 6 to 8, the battle in the forest of Ephraim. I love this passage because it's one of my favorite in Scripture. Because they go out, there's all these men fighting. You're talking about anything from 150,000 to 180,000 people fighting all in this forest. Right, And the passage says that 20,000 men from Israel died that day. But it says more of them were devoured by the forest than they were devoured by the sword. Now, for those of you that are Lord of the Rings fans, you know exactly what I'm thinking. Because in that book, there's, there's all these trees called ants, and they're like living trees that like kill people and they, like fight for the good people. And you're sitting there going, is that what happened? No. But it's kind of more like if you're a Star Wars fan in the Battle of Endor with the Ewoks. With the logs and the stormtrooper, It's a little bit more like that because, see, David's men were great guerrilla warfare fighters. They were good in the forest. And so when the, the war started happening, the battle started happening, and the men of Israel were routed, as they would flee through the forest, they're falling into pits. They're falling off of ledges. They're tripping and getting stuck in branches. And when that happens, then David's men could come and strike them. And it's setting you up for what's about to happen next, which is a great passage in Scripture. It's a passage that's full of irony, humor, and also sadness all in one. Because it tells you what happens next is that Absalom is riding on a mule. And he comes into contact with some of David's servants and turns around and tries to start booking it. And somehow gets his head and his hair caught in a tree branch. His mule goes out from under him. And here you have him dangling in midair. Now picture that for a moment. Whether he clotheslined himself and his hair got stuck or his head just got jammed between two bows of a tree, he is sitting there with no one to blame except his own head and hair for the position he got himself into. And the reason why I say it's satirical is because all commentators, all Jewish history has always focused on that being irony, that it's showing you that God's design and intention will work and sometimes it works in a little bit humorous ways. That God's going to go like, oh, you think your hair's so great, eh? Let me use it to kill you. And so, so Absalom's hanging from this tree, and one of Joab's soldiers see him, and he runs over and let me paraphrase this as well. He goes over to Joab and says, "Hey, I just saw Absalom hanging in a tree." (laughs) It's funny. Joab says, "You saw him? Why didn't you strike him there? I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt." And look at the soldier's response. He goes, "Even if I held a thousand pieces of silver." Notice he doesn't talk about the belt. He wants the belt. I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, for the king commanded, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. If I did this, I would have risked my life. See, this soldier remembers what happened when the person that killed Saul came and gave the message to David. This soldier remembers what happened when the two guys that killed Ishtar Saul's son, came and told David what they had done. David killed them. So this guy goes, if I do this, I'm dead. And he says, even more, you would have stood detached from it all, Joab. You would have said, like, I didn't do it. It was him so this guy has some wisdom but joab he doesn't waste any time and he kills absalom takes three javelins shoves it in his chest and then has his 10 young armor bearers come around him and start wailing on him till he dies and there's actually something strategic happening here joab's being very very purposeful because he's making sure that no one person is blamed for what happened because when he stabbed those javelins in him it didn't kill him And when you have 10 different guys striking him, you don't know who is the person that did the kill blow. So he's setting this all up so that he can't get fully in trouble. Pretty smart. You have to take the whole story in, in context. Joab was the person that had helped Absalom return back to the kingdom. They were kind of buddies. Absalom would have never expected Joab, an old friend, to be the one to finish him off. And a lot of people ask the question, did what Joab do, was it correct? Was it right? And I like what one guy says. He says, we might say that Joab was correct, but not right. He was correct in understanding that it was better for David and and Israel that Absalom was dead. But he was not right in disobeying the king, the God appointed authority over him. Why? Because in God's design and God's intention, much like David had done with Saul, God could have taken care of these people himself. You didn't have to take matters into your own hands, although it was the correct thing to do. But let's keep going, because we're almost out of time, and we still have a little bit of story left. So that all happens. Joab calls all the men back from battle, and now they have to figure out, are they going to send the message? And you have these two runners that are going to go bring this message to David, and it's about a three-mile run to the city of Mahanaim. And Ahimaaz, remember the junior hire that was in the well with Jonathan? He comes up and goes, here, let me go take the news to him. This is such good news. We just won the battle. And Joab's like, this is not good news. Don't you understand? The king's son is dead. So he goes, no, I'm not going to let you take the message. And he grabs a Cushite servant, someone that's working with them, that's from Egypt and Sudan. And he goes, can you go tell the message to King David? And the Cushite takes off and starts running. Now Ahimaaz, being a junior hire, comes over and goes, please let me run, please let me run, please let me run, let me go run, please let me run. Please, le- do you understand why I attributed? You- no, no, right. Finally, he annoys Joab to the point where Joab goes, okay, go, just go, but you're not going to get any reward for this. Trust me. And he's actually trying to protect Ahimaaz a little bit because he knows that there's the potential that he could be killed for bringing that message. And so you see this scene happen with these two runners, and one of them's a better runner and one of them's a worse messenger. <laughs> because Ahimaz runs, and they're running up to the city, and David's there, and there's a guy up on the citadel, and he sees these two guys running, and he goes, hey, look, there's someone coming. And David's like, that's going to be good news. And then he goes, and I see another one coming, and he runs like Ahimas. Now, don't you hate that when people know your running style? And they're like, oh, that's a good form. You know, so they can tell he's coming. Ahimaaz gets up there, and in verse 28, he brings the message to David. He bows down before him and says, all is well. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. But David asks the question that he cares about. He goes, is all well with Absalom? And look at his response. Um, when Joab sent your servant, I saw great commotion, but I don't know what it was. And David goes, turn aside and stand still. Because Ahimaaz was unprepared to share that news appropriately and he ended up having nothing to say that David wanted to hear. So then the Cushite runs up, verses 30 and 31, and he says the same thing. Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And David goes right to the point. Is it well with Absalom? Look at his answer. I think he had time when he was running three miles to think about this. May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that of the young man where he basically says he's dead. And then verse 33 is when it starts coming home to real life because you start seeing this emotional response of David, a response that a lot of us have felt probably personally when very difficult things have started happening in our life and we don't know what's going on with God's design and intention. Look what happens, verse 33. David is deeply moved. He goes up in the chamber over the gate and he weeps. And he just says, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And the beginning of 19 repeats the same thing. David is shaken. He's upset. He's bitter. The guy that's able to write eloquent psalms and put together beautiful words, sometimes for people's effigies, is a guy that in this moment is a blubbering, sobbing mess that can only repeat the same thing over and over and over again. I think there's two things going on. One is I think that David's concern and David's mourning and his response reflects the Lord's feeling over us. That God wishes that we didn't follow through on our rebellion and resistance and end up either physically or spiritually dead. In the same way as David felt wanting reconciliation, the Lord desires that deeply in us and he's willing to put himself in our place. The way we know that is from the act that you guys just did before this message of communion, that God sent his son knowing that he could take your spot because he did not want to see you die. I think that's one side of it. I think the other side is that David had this conflict of being a king versus being a father. Because he grieved so excessively and he wouldn't permit himself to be comforted. His response was abnormal and he started neglecting his responsibilities as king. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. And David knew his part in it. He knew that because of what he did with Bathsheba and what he had done to Uriah had caused this pain in his life. But the problem isn't with what David knew. The problem was with what David forgot. See, David forgot about God's design in that moment. He forgot that a great victory had just been won, that he had many loyal supporters, that God had just showed great grace and mercy in his life, and that his throne was still intact in the same way that God had promised it in 2 Samuel 7. See, when someone's overcome in tragedy or sorrow, the problem is not in what they know, it's in what they forget. And we forget a lot, don't we? We forget in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of things that feel like they're going out of control, we forget that God has a design and that he is working around us within it. Finishing off the story in chapter 19, Joab hears that David's mourning. All the soldiers hear that David's mourning, and it says that the victory that day was turned into mourning. And all of David's soldiers had to retreat back to the city as if they had just lost the battle that they had just done. And so it's all kind of messed up because what should have been a day of noise and celebration for David's army had become a confused time of embarrassment and shame. And David was being insensitive to his guys. Verses 5 to 7 have one of the most interesting passages in Scripture because Joab goes into the presence of the king and he lays it out for him. Let me read this to you. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons, daughters, wives, and concubines. Because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear... By the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the King arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before their king. Now isn't this interesting? The most inappropriate person coming to speak perspective into the life of the king. isn't that what what happens so often? That sometimes when we're forgetting about God's design, that God goes, I'm going to bring someone that you have no expectation is going to bring you any truth. And the most inappropriate person, the person that in fact had killed his son, is the person coming in and putting perspective on what's going on. I like how the passage finishes because David ends up getting up and going to the gate. David didn't feel like doing that. He was still sorrowful, but his feelings told him that he should stay locked in the excessive mourning. But David understood that what was right, what was God's design, was bigger than his feelings. He needed to go and maintain a life of worship by following God's design. So let me tell you a couple of conclusions I see that come out of three and a half chapters of Scripture. I think the first one comes with Absalom and Ahithophel. Neither of those men were able to view their circumstances from God's viewpoint. And worship has everything to do with viewpoint. Because that viewpoint asks the question, who am I serving as king? For these guys, they wanted it to be themselves. And that question has never really changed for us. Who is it that you serve as king? And how do you serve the people that God has set up? How do you serve God's people? How do you treat your spouse, especially if she's a believer or he's a believer? Students, how do you treat your parents? Absalom had so much bitterness and anger in his heart with his dad that he pushed his dad to the side, not only in his mind, but physically. What's your viewpoint on your parents, on the people that you call friends, on your church, on the leaders in your church? Because viewpoint has everything to do with the life of worship. I also look at Ahithophel and I wonder, again, how, can it, how tragic it can become when somebody that lives an exemplary and useful life ends up finishing so dishonorably. I also look at the story of Absalom getting his hair caught in the tree. And I get reminded within God's design and intention that sometimes God's going to do something a little bit ironic to show us that he is working in all the things around us. And I love that part of the story. I think David's response teaches us a lot because he has this abnormal and emotional loss of perspective. And we just said it. It's not about what he knew. It's about what he forgot. He forgot about God's design and he forgot about what was happening. And if you ever want to figure out how do I keep myself remembering and being reminded about God's design, the only way you do that is by saturating yourself in God's word. The only way that you're ever going to be able to respond to people truly when they're in chaos, when they're in pain, when they're in uncertainty, is to take them to the word. And that means that you need to know the word so that you can share that with them. But here's the last part. I think what's amazing with David's response and Joab's rebuke and what David gets up and does is it tells us this. God spared David from the death that he could have experienced. He gave him victory. And he did that in, fact, in spite of the fact that David was depressed. He did that in spite of the fact that David had commanded his men not to harm Absalom. See, God's purposes and promises are not frustrated by our sin. They are not frustrated by our depression. When your emotion gets involved in it, it does not mean that God cannot work. These were days when David's faith and his hope were at an all-time low. Did that keep keep God from accomplishing his purposes? Not at all. And so I think David saw life more clearly when he was at the depths of his humiliation. That's when he learned to trust God more richly. I know we don't like talking about it, but sometimes, and I think more often than we believe, we do have to hit rock bottom in order for us to really remember and understand God's design. And we try very, 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 very hard in our nation to fight that. I need to keep everything in control. I need to look like everything is perfect. I need to look like I can figure this out and my faith is there. But in a life of worship, and especially with the guy that says he's seeking after God's own heart, he had to get to that bottom. He had to submit himself to God's design and trust God's intention in all things that were happening. Let me pray for you guys. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for such a rich, somewhat humorous, and yet powerful message, Lord, about your design and your intention. God, thank you for showing us that we need to be reminded and not forget. Thank you for showing us that you're working in all the pieces that are around us, even when it doesn't seem like it. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself specifically to the people in this room, that you would show them the way that you are working your design and your intention in their life. Lord, please help them to see past the situations and the experiences and what's happening that kind of is throwing them into chaos. Lord, use people in this room that if things are going well, use them as some of the pieces that are going to play into others seeing your design and intention. And God bless us. I pray, Lord, that we would understand what your blessing means and what it means to have a father that loves us so much that he would be willing to put himself in our place, and that's what he did. Lord, help the cross and the work of your son, Jesus, sit at the forefront of our mind in everything that happens so that we understand that you had a design and you had an intention and you loved every single person that has walked into this room and has studied this passage and even those who haven't. So Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for teaching us from your word. Go with us from this place. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Now there's no-